Hello everyone, welcome to Theory of Architecture. My guest today is Neil McLaughlin. He is a now Sterling Prize winning Irish architect practicing in London and is also Professor of Architectural Practice at the Bartlett School of Architecture. Hello everyone, welcome to Theory of Architecture. I am joined today by Neil McLaughlin, who is a now Sterling Prize winning architect uh, from Ireland. Was it Northern Ireland or Southern Ireland? I've forgotten, I'm afraid. I was brought up in Southern Ireland, but my family are from Northern Ireland, so... Ah, there you go. Right, well, well welcome to the podcast. Um, first of all, I should say congratulations on winning the Sterling Prize this year. Thank you very much. Uh, did you expect that that would happen after you got the RBA Regional Award, or was it a sort of total surprise? I can't say it was either, really. I mean, once you're shortlisted, you're within a, you're within a group of a certain size. I think it was uh, one of a number of times we'd been shortlisted, so I was bearing the scars of previous Sterling Prize ceremonies, and uh, I was definitely moderating my expectations. So it was... Uh, very good to hear it, but I certainly wasn't uh, eagerly awaiting uh, a positive result. I think I'd uh, learned from le learned from my experience that it uh, doesn't always happen. Mm. I have to say, when I first saw sort of the building being published, with for those that don't know, we're talking about the Mad new Magdalen College Library. Um, when I first saw the pictures of the building being published, it immediately jumped out to me as a sort of high quality building that that went above and beyond what's typically published in the architectural media uh, and that might be because it's sort of closer stylistically potentially to what I'm like but there's just something about it that just immediately speaks of high quality um one thing I found interesting if you think about the RBA Sterling Prize it used to be for the building that advances architecture the most in that in the year and it's now sort of just for the best building overall do you think that's changed the dynamic of the prize itself and if so is that for the better or for the worse um i'm not sure that any individual sterling prize jury are going to be having jesuitical conversations about whether they're advancing architecture or really rec recognizing the best i think that that's probably i mean i've never been on one but i suspect that people are voting based on their gut most of the time and they I don't think that the buildings that we've seen recently are um, advancing the subject in any way more or less than they were a decade or so ago. I think what you tend to see with the Sterling Prize and said is you can see um, you can see certain broader social or political concerns that are being applied um, uh, by a jury in terms of what they think. They want to sometimes even communicate with the public. Um, there's always a curious discussion within the Sterling Prize as to whether the most important thing is for the RIBA to be sending a message to the public or sending a message to politicians, or whether they're supposed to be looking at the building and trying to work out what they think the best piece of architecture is. And I think there's all, all often a kind of an oscillation between those two concerns when you look at awards that are given over the years. Yeah, it would seem quite a shame to me if it if it did sort of start getting dragged into sort of wider political messages or that kind of thing, or 
like if it, if it was sort of taken out of the purity of what is simply the best architecture by like that you're sort of going down a slippery slope then perhaps um and sort of maybe polluting the idea that sort of pure quality is the main thing that matters but as someone who's interested in theory i think you'd need to interrogate a phrase like the purity of what is simply the best architecture <laughs> that would be quite a contested statement i would have thought oh well i'm happy to <laughs> happy to interrogate those sort of statements as much as you like i think no <laughs> I, I agree with you you're right um yeah it's well i suppose it speaks to sort of the wider role of of sort of the rba's awards generally i suppose isn't it and how public engagement moral is more or less uh, there or absent, increasingly absent, unfortunately, in recent years, I find. Um, have you found, have you had much engagement from non-architectural media in relation to the prize since you won? Yes, a fair bit, actually. Um, I think that uh, we've probably had more contact from non-architectural media outlets than from architectural media outlets, I would have said, probably. And is the nature of that engagement from those outlets different? Like, presumably they ask different sorts of questions to the architectural media. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean I, I'm not uh, criticizing the architectural media, but I usually find the questions that non-architects ask are generally a little bit more interesting because they have a kind of a kind of first principles direct response, while most questions which come from people within the discipline are going to be mediated by education and cultural positions and so on. So often you're asked more testing questions by, I tend to find you're often asked more testing questions by younger students or by non-architects because they, they'll sort of point and say, is that emperor wearing any clothes? You know, I just, you know, just asking, you know, don't want to offend you, but you know, rather than rather than I think there's a you know a natural and I'm not I'm not being critical of anybody, but I think there's a natural tendency for people within the architecture discipline to think that there are codes and ways in which you read buildings and they very quickly move into those kind of habits of reading, which means that the questions you get are slightly more predictable. Mm. Are there any particular questions that you have that can come to mind that the public have asked or that students have asked that were particularly insightful or probing or or thought provoking? Um, I can't think of a particular question, but um, I think that the, the if we look at the, say the library, which is the one we were beginning to talk about, um, well, members of the public or non-architects are more likely to quickly do is to imagine themselves sitting in the building as readers and to then through whatever whether they're you know then then to kind of recreate that 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 experience in their minds and then to begin to talk about what the building would be or is for them as readers and their commentary tends to be around that rather than architects who tend to pretty quickly move into an analysis of its sort of formal uh, systemic or even historical uh, attributes um, and to try and to try and read it as a kind of you know, as, a, as, a, as, as something which is a recognizable amalgamation of concerns that they know from within the discipline. Yeah. Do you think that's something that architects sometimes might have as an oversight in that not thinking enough about the actual experience of a non-architecturally trained member of the public or building user rather than their sort of more 
a sort of formally educated perspective? Well, I mean, if I'm teaching students, I'd probably be teaching them to do both. In other words, to be more like architects and less like architects. Um, because I think that uh, in order to design, you need, first of all, to have a level of empathy and ability to understand how other people would read a space that you're conceiving of or a, a place that you're conceiving, conceiving of. Um, and to try and move from apprehensions, which are really about other people's subjectivity, that will only get you a certain distance. And at some level or other, you have to begin to think, well, what does the range of means that architecture provides for me say to those apprehensions? And then there's a kind of transference across into, I mean, a way that we would typically teach it or even do it in the practice would be to say, Oh, well, if I'm considering those subjective states, um, are there buildings I know of where I felt that? Um, a, a good example I could give you is a building that we designed for people with dementia a decade or so ago. And one of the difficulties of designing for dementia is the sort of limits of interest subjectivity, because I can't say what it's like to have dementia. I can't say at all. Um, and yet I have to design for people who are experiencing or witnessing the world in a way that I'm not. So we spent a great deal of time listening to people with dementia, describing their experiences of being in the place that they were in, and then tried to accumulate from that some sort of mosaic or picture of what it was that they were experiencing. And we came up with a phrase which was a kind of the idea of a kind of continuous present that, that you and I are quite relaxed where we are because we remember how we got here. Therefore, we can plan how to get out of here, which is allows us to situate ourselves. But what if those two kind of bookends of our experience were removed and you're in a you can't quite say how you got here? Therefore, you can't quite plan how to get out of here. And so the world is unspooling in a, in a different kind of way. And I wondered if I felt like that, what buildings I'd like to be in that would somehow help me in that in that predicament. And we came to a number of, we had in the office here, we came to a number of buildings in, in conversation that we thought were somehow buildings that it would be better to be in than not if you if you had if 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 you if, if, if that was how you were experiencing the world. And once you've done that, you can talk about the subjective experience the building but you can quickly then move on to the plans and say well how are they doing that you know what's what, what can we look into in the deeper scoring of the building to see how that how that particular thing was achieved so that just goes back to your question about whether you should be more or less like an architect and the answer is i think more and less <laughs> well i think a lot of architects might or certainly students might struggle with that at times um I well, that's something you can teach isn't it well, hopefully. Have you found that you can teach that in your experience with teaching? Well, I mean, you, you wouldn't teach if you thought you couldn't. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I always think the same thing, but rather than sort of architect, architect versus public, I always try and think of architect versus contractor. Because at the end of the day, someone has to attach two pieces of building material to each, together and cumulatively that makes a building. And then architects who understand that process better tend to make better buildings in my experience yeah i had a, um, a very good teacher uh, shane de Blockham, who worked with louis Kahn, and um 
he used to say that the, the, the architect's authority was in their working drawings. And what he meant by that was that as soon as a builder picks up an architect's drawing, the builder knows how much the architect knows about building in a way that many architects wouldn't realize because the builder is seeing someone who has been able to accurately predict the dilemmas and predicaments and problems of not simply how the building will look or weather, but how would you get that brick into that place or what tool would you use to tighten that particular and I've often described it as being like um, ordnance survey maps, that if you have an ordnance survey map and you get lost, you know it's your problem and not the map, because the map has such, a, has such authority. Um, and uh, it would be a dream for an architect to be able to produce drawings that builders would look at and feel that they could believe in that working relationship by looking at the drawing. That's a kind of a specific skill that architects could acquire, isn't it? Which is not just technically knowing, but it's also legibility and subjectively or, or having a degree of empathy with the way that somebody would unpick the drawing. Like the person who drew that last IKEA uh, diagram that you tried to operate, you, you understand the extent to which they were able to accurately predict the sort of problems that you would have reading the drawing and turning it into a way of assembling those parts. And it's, it's an extraordinary skill to try to acquire, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And I think a lot of the times architects put other factors ahead of legibility. And I hate to say, although I am a brief attendee of the Bartlett, the uh, Bartlett is perhaps one of the worst offenders in terms of legibility of drawings. Um, that its students produce, and I often try and look at look at the architectural drawings that they produce, and the sort of incredibly beautiful drawings, and the the sort of difficulty in reading them and trying to find the architecture within the sort of beautiful piece of artwork, I often quite find quite difficult, and that's even as someone who is a trained architect. So I do wonder sometimes whether that's the right thing or the right way to be teaching students in terms of how to present their drawings. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? Well, um, I mean, I was talking about the legibility of working drawings, which is a very specific output of architectural practice. And obviously, architects make very many different kinds of drawings. And some of them are drawings where legibility will be the principal criterion. However, I think it's possible for architects to make uh, drawings where legibility is not the principal criterion. Whether there, whether there are other things at play. And I think that there's a history in architecture of making drawings that um, the intention of the drawing is not primarily its transparency. Um, and I think that probably, I would have thought the recent manifestations of it didn't necessarily begin in the Bartlett. I mean, there were people teaching in Cambridge and in the AA in the 80s for whom a certain kind of blurring of the relationship between the precise act of drawing um, and the notion of conjuring a kind of larger idea of the world through suggestion was, 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 was the main game in town. So that sort of that 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 idea of the building being of the drawing being both and has got a reasonably long, I'm sure much longer than that. But in recent history in London, there certainly has been a certain frisson which drawings 
have, which has been commended through many schools, which is about this. this um, and, and what they're often doing is they're playing with the presumption that an architectural drawing would be precise and accurate, and they're using a kind of lexicon of precision and accuracy, but actually intending to produce something else by doing it. And that belongs probably to a larger worldview. And I think the way in which it moved from people who may be principally interested in phenomenology to um, the kind of the kind of uh, the, the different world of the Bartlett through certain teaching practices, it then became something else, which was probably that kind of long interest the British have with devices and instruments being used in a way which is not in a sense positivist but is in a sense a parody of the instrument or a kind of a, a kind of a lyrical parody of the instrument so there are there are reasons why students end up drawing things like that i would say it's often an issue that students don't actually know that themselves and it's become so completely internalized in the architecture of these schools that they're simply producing them because it's the it's it's the mode of the moment but there is a sort of long history going back even to gandhi of, of of a certain kind of architectural drawing where the principal um the principal intention is not simply transparency yeah i suppose it's very it's, it's a very different skill set depending on what audience or what the purpose of a particular drawing is isn't it like you say the legibility of, of construction drawings is a very particular thing whereas the sort of the i don't know the artistic expression or the the design expression of a of a presentation drawing especially to an academic audience is another thing and then you could even say beyond that there's the the classic sort of presentation drawings to clients who aren't from the architectural academia which could be another thing entirely and they're all very different sort of skill sets that require different ways of thinking and i think you're right that there's definitely an internalization of a certain style of architectural drawing that perhaps leans very heavily on the academic um and I think that's that's fine as long as there's also the skill set there of being able to communicate effectively to both clients and contractors. Yeah, but I think implicit, I mean, the original question you asked, which was a, a not unusual sort of uh, criticism of the, the output of the Bartlett School, you framed it as a um, criticism of the kind of drawings that the students do. But what you probably mean is that there's something about what the school does in general that's represented by those drawings that you have a degree of difficulty with? Well, I'm not, not sure necessarily, no. I think it's, I mean, I have wider general criticisms of architectural education generally, but I'm not sure it's specific to the Bartlett in particular. Um, as I say, I've, I've been to the Bartlett, so I'm I'm sort of one of the offending, offending people to some extent. Um, but do you think that in terms of architectural education, do you think that the way it is currently is the right sort of path that it's on? Or do you think what what are the sort of biggest issues currently facing architectural education? And how how do you think in the immediate future it needs to shift, if at all? I think that's quite a big question. Um, um, and there are sort of interrelated parts of it, which I can't all assemble in my mind at the same time. Um, you could talk about the purpose of architectural education. You could talk about the content of architectural education. You could talk about 
teaching methods and you could talk about the milieu and all of them are quite um I mean they obviously in, interrelate um it seems clear to me uh having worked in the UK for a number of decades that there is a kind of um uh there has been a kind of tension between um architectural education and practice and it's produced in some in some schools a kind of standoff um but i think that the aspects of that which i might have talked about a decade ago or even more recently have been changed by a whole new set of values that you're now now finding in the schools um and i think that Certainly, the education that I'm seeing are the the kind of conversations in education that I'm now witnessing are quite different, even to five or ten years ago. Um, so, just to begin that, a lot of the teaching that I've done um, in London um, or around London, um, there's been a significant majority of people who teach uh, who are not practitioners, and amongst them. I've witnessed a significant cohort who are very skeptical or even dismissive of practice, where it's seen as being boring or um, kind of pragmatic in a negative sense. And that the idealism of architectural education, you know, that every student is just in for a disappointment when they hit the world, they, office and that there's this then this standoff between practices who are if, if I polarize it you know the idea of the practice that's looking for that dreadful word oven ready architects um and that dreadful phrase rather and then the schools who are saying well it's not our responsibility to pay architects for the means that you wish to put them to it's our responsibility to give them a, um, a deeper philosophical education or critical education. And so you have this kind of um, kind of hopeless standoff. Um, and of course, it tends to become a little bit self-reinforcing if schools are only employing their best students to come straight back into the school to teach again, then that sense of being in a special protected place away from the corruption of the world tends to get emphasized over time. And the distance of all of that from the practices that surround the school becomes um, uh, greater. And so, and so it produces a kind of a standoff. Um, so in, in general terms, what I would say about that is that you have to think, if, if I think about my education, um, I don't remember it being about receiving large amounts of information. Uh, I'm sure I did. But my primary memory of it is of a kind of witnessing activity. I was very fortunate to be taught by a lot of really interesting architects and a lot of really interesting architects who had been taught by really interesting architects. So I had people in my studio sitting at my desk who had worked with me, so with Khan, or who would be in Corbusier's office. I had people like Grafton Architects teaching me in third year, or Donald and Toomey teaching me in four fourth year. Shane de Blockham teaching me in first year, you know, Robin Walker in fourth year. I mean, they were amazing people. Um, and even since then, the people who I've met in my teaching practice in the UK, I sort of remember the sense of looking at them and going, oh, you could, you know, you could make the world, you, you, could, you could set out your stall like that. They become witnesses to an idea of the world. 
And the way that they disport themselves, the way that they talk, the way that they draw, the way that they gossip, everything is part of an architectural world that they embody that as a student, you're looking at it going, hmm, that's interesting. And to some extent, you begin to internalize that, or you selectively internalize parts of it from different people. And that's almost more important than some equal sign that they put between a task and the information that they can provide you. I mean, I used to sit for hours beside Robin Walker, and he would just sit there in a tweed suit, smoking a huge cigar, like a blind chess player, instructing me how to make drawings with sort of 6H pens and pencils. And it was an amazing education. And so that sense of teaching as witnessing, I think is quite important. And I think the other thing is that all of them embodied an idea of lifelong education. Um, and that goes two ways, not simply that you educate yourself after you leave your formal education in university, but rather that you, that you also treat your formal education as being a mode of practice in its own right. So it's rather depressing to think that you would spend five years merely practicing for a task you're going to carry out or sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's a rather sort of diminished view of what education might be. Clearly, it's possible within a good uh, teaching studio to set projects which can speak to practice and allow certain things to happen that couldn't happen necessarily in practice, but which... Uh, would illuminate all sorts of issues for practitioners who wish to look into that world. And so that sense of, um, of dialogue between teaching and practice seems to me to be extremely important, but not one that prioritizes the, the demands of one over the other. Um, but, but, but moving on from that, something that I notice in education at the moment is, first of all, um, an intense interest from students and actually a lot of teachers as well, about how education is conducted in the sense that it hasn't been conducted very well in the past. And obviously the Bartlett has been in the eye of the storm over that, but it certainly goes back to my own education. I can think of crits that I attended that were pretty unsavory affairs. Um, and so I think that I think that most people in most schools would recognize that they, there is a way of conducting yourself in the schools um, which becomes a culture, which becomes propagated within and across the schools. Um, and the students have actually called it out. Um, and I think other practitioners are calling it out in practices. And one would hope that that would work its way up into the building industry in a general way. Um, and that's, I think, got something to do with the way in which we respect each other in dialogue. And... Um, uh, I think that's quite important, and I think it hasn't been worked out yet, but I think in most schools, hopefully, it's going to be a discussion that takes place over the next few years. Um, I see it at almost every level, and to some extent, what I would say is there's an old thing that goes right back to the Beaux-Arts, at least, which is the idea that somehow you have this design task and you have to give every bit of yourself to that design task and it becomes a consuming thing. And you get this rather over-identification between the author and the work. And you get this sense that if you're not punishing yourself to, or being punished to produce the work, that somehow you don't really mean it enough. I mean, that's an absolutely lethal formulation. Um, first of all, you have to teach students that they are not their work and that it's possible to talk about their work without 
passing comment on them um, or them not feeling that comment has been passed upon them. So there's a degree of ob objectivity that you can be trained into. And with that objectivity, you need to be able to learn how to explain your ideas, listen to criticism, and conduct these formal or semi-formal conversations in such a way that that skill can be taken forward into practice, that you can that you can deal with difficulty in those conversations, that you can hold your own, that you can choose to push back to somebody and say, I don't think that's a good way of talking. Uh, and, and that that can be conducted collectively, first of all, in the teaching studio, then in the architectural office, um, so that there's a kind of what I would call a self-respect that we could be inducting all of the way through all of the levels of architectural practice that uh, I think would be a very valuable thing. And I think it's a very current thing. And it goes through to how we conduct ourselves on building sites, the way we we respect people on that side and the respect that we expect to have called, you know, that we, we expect to have back. And it even goes down to the kind of contracts that we negotiate with clients that I think that there's a, there's a sense that, because I sense that this sort of all or nothing, you know, if you're not in it and bearing the scars on your, you know, on your arms, that somehow you haven't, you haven't lived the architectural dream. I think that's an extremely problematic formulation. And I think that architecture education is probably in some ways in quite in quite contested ways. But I think that generally it's beginning to do that. And I've certainly learned a lot listening to some of the teachers in my school and some of the students in my school um, about the experiences that they're having and thinking, well, if I extrapolate that through to all of the experiences I've had as a student, as a teacher, as a practitioner, uh, as someone who's presenting it in public forums, as someone who does architectural competitions, as someone who goes to building sites, how do you extrapolate that demand across all of them? I think there's a really interesting conversation for teaching uh, to have with the profession about that. Um, and there's something else that comes up out of that that I find interesting, which is that, um, and maybe it goes back, and the reason I pulled you up on the point you made about um, would it not simply be about the you know, would it not simply be about the best building? I mean, that's really because one of the conversations at the moment that I think is not one of the what's the word I'm looking for, but but the, 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 there is a presumption from a younger generation of architects and certainly amongst students about where value lies in architecture, um, and driven by a number of things. For example, the climate emergency, um, issues that are emerging, where uh, issues around diversity that are discussed much more outwardly at the moment, um, and a number of other things. That there is a kind of, I suppose, a kind of an ethics of architecture that is coming to the foreground, um, which must in itself be interesting. And as as an as an older teacher now, the thing that I'm asking my students back is, if I accept that that's interesting, of course I do, then is there an equal and opposite thing which says that it is possible also to talk about architectural merit as a thing in itself? I mean, you can never completely separate it from ethics, we know that, but that, but that sometimes it feels at the moment as though if something has been set out as being, as, 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 
as 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 sort of embodying um in a sense almost the ethics of the program that it is by definition then a good piece of architecture and that nothing else needs to be done that there's no more sophisticated conversation that needs to be had about it and i think that's something that i would um while completely enjoying the transformation of my own thinking that's coming from these challenges that i'm getting from younger practitioners in my office or from my students i'm also with my gray hair saying but i remember those issues of the architectural review where some amazing critic is reviewing a Lasden building in the context of a deep historical knowledge and there were pages of you know expert text dedicated to the complexity of the architectural argument that's being pursued and i would also ask for that to be retained and i feel sometimes slightly that it's been that it's been lost with all the other exciting stuff that's going on and i think that that's a pity yeah i think that's probably one of my biggest criticisms of the of a lot of the work that is produced these days is that it's all about the the sort of the subject of it or the politics of it or the ethics of it or whatever the sort of the concept of what of what the function of the proposal is rather than the actual design the actual architecture of the proposal itself if you take that out separately i always thought that it would be a great challenge to give uh master students the task of designing a a three bedroom two story house and say like this is your framework it's entirely ordinary and boring and dull do something good exceptional high quality within that incredibly dull uninteresting unpolitical unethical framework and that that challenge like to excel within a within mediocrity or within a, a mediocre framework is actually harder than to say oh well, i'm going to propose this amazing thing that does this amazingly ethical pro this thing pro that thing function but in the process of doing that being distracted away from the architecture itself but yeah i mean on one hand i know what you're saying but i suppose the the new the 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 neutral program that you said that you set is not as innocent as you think it is i mean given the number of rooms you specified for the house uh the size of the house you've already established a kind of an economical media which that house is within and probably even by the description of the nouns you use you've implied certain kinds of family structures and uh, you know that as soon as as soon as uh, people get into that you'll find that there are, you know i mean i mean in a way one of the interesting things that younger students are saying is that nothing is innocent and you need to be very careful about about uh assuming that you're speaking from a dispassionate position I think that that's one of the, one of the challenges that we have as a generation to understand that that's simply not that's simply not possible and certainly one of the things that really interesting conversations I'm having with my students at the moment is that I firmly believe that as a practitioner and as a teacher that your ability to conceive of um the kinds of worlds that you want to make for your buildings has to come from a deep literacy in the history of architecture but of course the history of architecture is not uncontested and the examples that i might be lazily putting forward to my students as being embodiments of the history of architecture would be open to all sorts of crit criticisms um and that 
rather than saying, well, then I'm wrong and they're right or they're right and I'm wrong, it just opens up a really interesting dialogue, which is if nothing is innocent, then how do you how do you deal with that? Uh, how do you how do you and and so we have to rather than looking at exemplar buildings, which is what we do with our students, we spend the first term looking at existing buildings, but we really try to understand the kind of norms and values of the world that they came out of, and uh, and to see where we can compare them across to other worlds, um, but also to understand the complexity of the ground which was which 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 allowed a building like that to come into being. And to try and teach some sense of being able to critically look at architectural culture in the world of the moment, or architectural culture through history, with a with 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 with, with a much better sense of the conditions within which it's produced, which allows you to see both how it applies to your world and the differences between that world and yours, which I think is something is a really interesting aspect of what we can do at the moment. Mm. I'd like to make a slight segue. Um, and talk about the B word, which is beauty. Uh, first of all, is beauty a dirty word in architecture still? Um, and where do you think the idea of beauty does uh, and or should sit within architecture today? I mean, it's definitely a tricky word. I remember having a very serious row with my teaching partner many years ago about beauty. And I can't remember what it was. I just remember we got actually got very, very cross with each other. <laughs> um, I, th- I, 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 it's, it's, it's difficult because um, as a practitioner, you're trying to bring your buildings to a level of, well, what's even the word to look for? There's a certain kind of deep harmony and a certain kind of uh, complexity and tension that you want to have within the work, which is, uh, the word I would use is probably suggestive. So I'll tell you a very simple anecdote. When I was 17, I was going to study, um, I wanted to study English literature. And I applied to it for my first university place. And there's a funny thing in Ireland that at the very end of the summer, you can fill out a form to change your mind. And I was walking through Trinity College Dublin on a wet night um, with the lights shining off the cobbles. And I looked up and I saw a building by... Um, Aaron's Burton Carlock, the Berkeley Library, which is one of their first projects. And I had not studied art at school. I couldn't draw. I had no aesthetic education. Um, but the building seemed to be speaking to me in a very, in a way that I had never experienced before. And it, it brought itself to my attention in a way that I hadn't experienced before. And I felt it was communicating to me, but in an entirely non-verbal way. And there was something, I can analyze it now and say something about, about weight and lightness and tautness and balance and symmetry and asymmetry and so on. But but it was like a really deep musical chord that that, that I felt in my belly and that rose up into my heart. And I just felt it, it, it felt like falling in love. So that building 
had something and spoke to me in a way that um, was probably critical to persuading me to change my mind and apply to be an architect. Now, it's interesting, if you go to Trinity College, most days the students who do those kind of tours for the local tourists show them all the old buildings and then come and stand outside and say, we have, unfortunately, we have this ugly beast here, which everybody hates. But for me, even still, it's one of the most beautiful buildings in Ireland. Now, I use the word beautiful, but what I mean by it is that, like, that that almost kind of deep bass chord that 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 holds you in thrall, um, and I think that at some level, I mean, it's it's more or less highly tuned given what the building's purpose is. It wouldn't be necessarily very nice for some ordinary bits of um, mixed-use housing to have that quality, but you might expect more of that quality from a sacred space, for example. But 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 there is a sense of deep harmony that as architects designing that we we are looking for in our, in, we're, we're looking to create in our work and we're hoping that other people will feel it when we do it. Um, and it's also something that people don't agree about. Um, and I find that interesting. I'm very interested in things like beauty and reason that we hold up as being perfect human um, virtues but which we we can't actually agree about what they are. Because at some level, there must be forms of social rhetoric that we're looking at. We must have evolved to have some need for these kinds of apprehensions. But 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 they're not, you know, as, as, as one of the interesting writers on reason has said, it's not an evolved phenomenon like eyesight and hearing, because we don't all agree on what we think is reasonable. But I think that... Um, I think that there is a sense that architecture has to, as a first principle, come across as being a reasonable act. And, and, and therefore it has to, at some level of, at some rhetorical level, it has to demonstrate its reasonableness. And I, and, and I think you could say that an, uh, an advanced level of that, like hearing a lawyer making a good argument, would have a certain beauty to it. But that's not all. Um, and there's a nice text. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to answer a difficult question by sort of slightly wandering around, but there's a nice text by the Argentinian writer Borges where he, 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 he asks himself what beauty is, and he says certain landscapes, certain faces, he said, are trying to tell us something, or They've just told us something that we should not have missed. That imminence of revelation. Maybe that is the aesthetic fact. I, I think he says something like that. And I love this idea that the idea that, that beauty is somehow the imminence of meaning, the sense that something, whether it's a building or a poem or a piece of music, uh, has created a space and it hasn't filled that space with an interpretation, but it's allowed you to want to move into it and fill it with something from yourself. And so as someone who tries to create these things, it's a balance between what the authors of the work bring to create that imminence, that, that, that space where meaning might be read or that imminence of meaning, which is not meaning itself. It's the openness that allows meaning to arise in other people. That that, that, that that maybe all really good architecture uh, allows people to have allows people to have that sense. 
And it does it probably by deeper structures that exist that create a kind of realm where you can situate yourself amidst reasonableness. And then there's something else that comes like a deeper chord out of it that that, 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 that opens up the opportunity for you to read meaning into the place. So, I mean, I think that's my best version of what I can say about it. That's an excellent answer. Um, you mentioned that well, on the tours of University College Dublin, which is somewhere I had the pleasure of visiting uh, last year for the first time, which was very nice, um, that the, the sort of the tour guides immediately go to the old buildings and then sort of say sorry about this ugly modern modernist building, brutalist building in the middle. Um, I was at the University of Kent initially for undergrad, which has a lot of the same sort of brutalism. Why is it that you think that the public generally, if you can make that generalization, are averse to certain kinds of architecture, such as brutalism and what I call corporate modernism as well, um, and are more inclined towards others? Is it possible to disentangle why that is the case? Um, and if there are legitimate reasons behind it, what should contemporary architects do in terms of how they should approach the public's general, um, I don't know, skepticism towards certain kinds of architecture? Um, I mean, there are certain brutalist buildings. I mean, I, I'm never very sure about the term, but but but, but there are certain buildings that are described as brutalist buildings um, that I like and there are an awful lot of them that i really really don't like and i'm sort of with the public on them and i would have thought it's self-evident to most people why the public don't like them um and i think that they belonged to um a kind of i mean it's interesting the word brutalism it has a kind of virility in it doesn't it, Is it, they, it and it's around the same time as we had abstract expressionism. It, it, that era is a slightly kind of macho kind of kind of scent of musk off the fifties that I don't sort of male musk off the fifties that I don't really like. It's a, you know it's you can see it in literature, you can see it in painting, you can feel it in architecture, and this idea that a sort of cultivated. Um, I mean, you can understand reasons in the fifties why trying that why the why the word why why the notion of a kind of um, an ingratiating beauty would have been highly problematic. So culturally and philosophically at the time, you can feel why that generation would have been reacting to the trauma of its recent past by feeling that it has to own these form these uh, these 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 crude forms that have emerged from its own culture and to try to to try to work those through their own architectural production. And I do, I, I do understand that. But I think that once it goes beyond the really deeply felt versions of that, it becomes um, a kind of habit of mind that loses its agency. And I think that, I think that um, it then becomes, the, the then becomes, you know, for a very, very long time, there was a default thought in architecture that concrete, if you did things in concrete, you were kind of more real, weren't you? You were you were already you were truer to the, the heart of architecture. That was that was a proper thing to be doing. And yeah. I mean it's kind of flipped now, interestingly, but 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 
there was a there, there there was a kind of induction we all had into a world that made it seemingly self-evident to us that these things represented integrity and virtue. But someone cooked, someone cooked that up as a conception, and it's 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 it's, it's problematic. And it, it, to me, it speaks of a culture that is somehow detached from the reality of um, ordinary experience. And I think that probably that was a difficulty that that, um, that architects at the time had that they felt that they had an authority and an agency to pursue their own aesthetic. Um, uh, intentions without sufficient regard for the reality of uh, the consequences of that. And I think that I'm slightly skeptical about the way that a certain kind of virtuous journalism has resurrected brutalism as representing integrity again in recent years um, for partly political reasons to do with sort of a, a kind of a yearning for um a version of the state that's been that's been lost through neoliberalism, um, and so that architecture has seemed to come to stand for a kind of a prelapsarian idyll, which I, I find problematic as well. Um, and to me, there's a I mean, to me, one of the interesting transformations that occurred to me when I came to the UK is that I arrived at a time when it wasn't self-evident that architects had any worth at all. And there was a uh, uh, there was a, a really problematic relationship between architecture and um and 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 public life. Um and you had people like Bob Geldof saying, if I meet an architect at a party, I hit him first and ask questions afterwards. You had obviously all the Prince Charles stuff and some practices that were ruined by that. Um and one of the things that it it did produce among a lot of very thoughtful people, some of them architects and some of them not, was a more open question about the extent to which architects should be accountable to the public in that sense. And that's both how architects explain their own world to the public, so there's a better understanding of it, but also a way in which architects could listen better um, and understand and try and think more deeply, because it's not good enough to say, we have this aesthetic. We have this. We have this. We have this mode of practice that produces artifacts for everybody, which most people don't like. But we know they have virtue because we know more about these matters. I mean, that's not that's not a good formulation. Um, and I think that we do need to think more deeply about the degree of alienation which people feel about what you could call, in broad terms, modernism. Um, and of course, it's not. It's not homogenous, it's not a single phenomenon, and it's not that all people dislike all things modern. And there's a lot of complexity within that conversation, and there's a lot of context within that conversation. Um, but, but I suppose one thing that I would say is that a lot of my thinking and reading about architecture, I often ask myself, well, we got on very well with that architecture for a very long time in our own history or prehistory. And, and why did we suddenly need it? And, and, and what, what role was it actually fulfilling? Um, and what purpose was it serving when, 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 when what we would think of as being modes of architectural practice first started to emerge in you know, the early Neolithic? What, 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 what role was it fulfilling for communities and for societies at that time? And is there something that we could learn about that, that um, 
um, that would help us to understand the predicaments of the moment. Um, and one of the things that comes across most consistently is a sort of small c conservative vocation that architecture has as a kind of um, as a form of history making. So um, some of the really interesting archaeologists and anthropologists who I'm reading at the moment, like Ian Hodder, for example, he talks about history houses and that the initial purpose of the house is not shelter or anything else, that it's a way of creating what he calls temporal death. And that one of the really deep vocations of architecture is to create temporal depth, which is which is which is which is the perception that we could have that we as a community can hold ourselves together uh, for longer periods of time, because uh, there are certain artifacts that we create, for example, buildings and settlements that offer us uh, a larger temporal horizon for for our experiences, and that. A lot of the practices which seem to have existed around the earliest temples and houses and settlements seem to have been more concerned with generating representations of temporal death than they were with any of what we would think of as being the more obviously functional attributes of shelter or settlement or anything else. And if we, if we allow ourselves that thought, we can trace it through architectural history, that, that way in which that, that conservation that I'm talking about of older forms and newer forms that use of skeuomorphs, that way of rebuilding timber details and stone. It, it's always a kind of, it's like that, that when you're creating a kind of garment that to move forward, you have to stitch back. And that moving forward by stitching back seems to me to be not a unique attribute of architecture, but there the other practices which have that most strongly, I think are like architecture. Um, and given that for me architecture at least is primarily about situatedness that the situationist shouldn't simply be thought of as situatedness in a kind of abstract space but rather that it situates us in time and even if i go back to the kind of the local thing i said about dementia earlier on that i can sit in this room and feel well because i remember how i got here and i can plan how to get out if you extrapolate that into deeper history um, one of the things that buildings do is to support our sense that we exist in um, within larger time horizons. And that brings extraordinary benefits to us in our ability to socialize in constructive ways. And if you allow that as a thought, then one of the kind of, uh, you know, one of the problematic aspects of architectural idealism in the architectural avant-garde of the 20th century is this kind of um, this kind of rejection of time? This idea of the moment, this idea of the extinction of time, and and the tabula rasa, and the the, the the idea that we are always moving into a future of possibilities and trying to shed trying to shed a deeper past. It produces a kind of abstraction. I think it does it in modern architectural practice. It does it in modernist avant-garde architectural practice. It does it in other art forms. But I think it's it's also happening at deeper levels within the society that you're getting this kind of permanent deracination. You're getting this kind of digging up of the loam, the loam of um, social habits, social practices, uh, the idea of knowing yourself by knowing the place that you came from and the community and the values that they had. Um, and so that kind of that kind of desacralization. Um, 
and um, abstraction of of modern of modernism of social modernism, which has its correlation in um, in forms of avant-garde practice, uh, is always likely to produce a kind of alienation. Sorry, that's a very long answer. No, that's a very good, very interesting answer. That um, that situatedness and that deeper sense of time. How do you incentivize that on the side of the client? Because obviously they have deliverables, they have budgets, they have timescales, they have all the things that they like to measure. How do you, other than them being very enthusiastic about that thing in particular, how do you create an incentive mechanism within the sort of functional procurement of buildings that will? make clients or encourage clients to value that situatedness and that deep sense of time sufficiently highly to get to the level that you need for a a reasonably good contribution to society of each building i don't think clients are the problem i think i think it's 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 architects who are who are, who are more likely to be casting themselves off and to be skeptical about that most clients if whatever clients we work with if you look at the place where you're building the building and, and not just clients but also the sort of communities that surround building projects our first instinct would always be to look at that place and to find out everything we can about it and to come back and start telling stories about that place and people are usually just dying to listen to that. They, that, that they, they find that a very satisfying way to start a project. And it, we would say it's more likely to give us license and opportunity in everything from the planning process to the client conversations. And I don't just mean those kind of richly endowed institutional clients who have a lot of cultural treasures around them, but even in reasonably um, unprepossessing places, when we did did a study on the history of that place. There's a kind of a natural fascination that comes from it. I remember we did a building many years ago down in Silvertown um, for the Peabody Trust. And you know, when we started doing soil samples, we discovered the most extraordinary um, smorgasbord of poisons in the ground. And so we actually did an analysis of where all these poisons had come from and found out about sugar making and color making and matchmaking and all the extraordinary kind of and you know we we realized that this site all of the all of the things that had been impossible and only for the rich in the 18th century became cheap and, and uh, open you know matches sugar color became things that everybody could have in the 19th century and they were made in these poisonous places and People were, I mean, it was a wasteland, but people were fascinated to hear that this piece of empty ground had a kind of, uh, had already had a history. Um, I don't know anybody who wasn't immediately fascinated by that as an idea. So I've never found it as being something that we have to overcome in terms of our conversations with clients. It's more likely to be something that they'll feel as though it's, it, it actually helps to bring them into the design conversation because it's something that you can, or stories that you can share at the beginning. And on the more, sort of practical level uh you have used you mentioned in one of your talks i was listening to when you were talking to the bricklayers at uh the library and you were saying you said something like you'd said to them that they would never get another opportunity to do brick laying brickwork of that quality or that complexity um you've used ornament a fair amount more i would say than the typical contemporary architect um in your sort of 
sphere of, of projects. What does ornament mean to you and what's your sort of philosophy of ornament in the way you've used it in your projects? So just to begin with a little correction, but my, what you described me as saying to the bricklayer sounds slightly exceptionalist when you quoted that <laughs> to me. It's very good, except I didn't say it. Oh right. It, it, it was the it was the it was the guy who was leading the bricklaying team who said it. Ah right. So okay. so he, he he was he was the he was the head bricklayer for the contractor, and he was saying, you know, this is it, boys. This this, this is our you know. Um, I wouldn't like to claim to any bricklayer that mine's or mine mine are the best bricks I've ever laid. That's rather <laughs> presumptuous. Um, so to come on to the next um, to the next issue of an ornament, um, uh, where do I begin with that? Um, I mean, it's kind of it, it's a really curious thing, and these conversations about ornament go well back into the 19th century. Um, because it's it's one of these things that when you lose it, it's extremely difficult to pick it back up again. And you wonder where you would begin. Um, and so there's a kind of sense of loss that we have that there was something that ornament gave to buildings that we see in older buildings that at some level not everybody but many of us kind of ache for ache for that sense um and yet if you try and find a way back into recreating it it becomes quite problematic because ornament was a natural outcome of certain social and material practices that had an integrity within the societies that produced it at that time and the self-evident character that allowed it to flow and to be produced and to be read and understood. And it entered, generally speaking, in the 19th century, well below the ones that are, well before the ones that architects usually quote, like out of Los and so on. There was this Pretty interesting anxiety about ornaments goes, at least in my mind, back to the 1840s and 1850s. Someone like Redgrave, who wrote amazing essays about the Great Exhibition, and he was saying, well, if ornament is produced by stamp, print, and dye, what can it possibly be? You know, that, that, that somehow, because, you know, this idea that mechanically produced ornament has somehow lost its, um, lost its aura. Um, and uh, this kind of um, kind of intoxication and also repulsion that the Victorians had for their ability to produce ornament in, en masse because somehow the value of ornament at some level was always that somebody had made it and how could you make such a thing with a kind of wonder of it having been created but that somehow it could just be cranked out by um, uh, a 19th century press or uh, a 21st century computer program and then what is it? Um, and we, we did a series of projects that I don't think were intended to be um, theoretical statements of what it should be, but they were more truly essays in saying, well, could it be this? And if we made it, would we find out whether it could or couldn't be this? And we did, I think, three or four projects that used ornament in different ways. And I would say that in a way they made 
quite successful buildings, but they all have levels of failure built into them that, 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 that leaves me with the same predicament as I originally had, which is I think that it's very difficult. I mean, because to some extent, the ornamentation of buildings um, at some level or other is provide it is a form of telling of parables. It's a kind of weaving into the building layers of parables um, uh, that are just that are just harder to tell with modern buildings. And um, something we were fascinated by when we worked on the Natural History Museum was the extraordinary ornamentation on the facade of the Natural History Museum in South Kensington. Um, and what's extraordinary about it is that one of um, the great biographers of Darwin describes the facade of that building as an essay against Darwin. Um, Owen was the uh, Richard Owen was the um, was the uh, leader of the museum at the time. He fundamentally disagreed with Darwin's Darwin's ideas on transmutation, and he got Waterhouse to produce one of the best facades in London. Um, as an, as an exemplary example of how architecture could show that transmutation was not possible. So every structural bay contains each animal in their own phylae. Um, you know, the, 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 the natural history is divided into the extent and the extinct and these static boxes of time, everything which evolutionary theory took over. And what was really hilarious about it is that um, by the end of the building, Waterhouse had realized that Darwin was the main game in town, and he was sneaking what he called his Darwinian monkeys into, into bits that he thought Owen would miss. So what you have there is a situation where the building is referring to a mode of building, which in the past would have said that truth is static and eternal, and therefore you can carve into the stones of the building a representation of eternal truth. And what happens when modern science comes into play or the modern rational method, which is, uh, which is, uh, which is uh, the key engine of the Enlightenment? Because knowledge becomes not static and eternal, but constantly open to replacement, constantly contingent. And, and then you get the one that's just around the corner, the completely blank glass facade of the 20th century building, in which architecture has fallen into a kind of silence where it only talks about its own properties. You know, it can talk about function or structure or truth to materials, but it's endlessly regressing back onto itself. Um, and the ability of buildings to tell public parables through their, their kind of elaboration has been lost. And we feel that loss, but the loss isn't simply the loss of the kind of motifs that people put onto buildings. It's the loss of the kind of stability that architect that, that buildings could once provide by claiming a relationship with fixed systems of knowledge. And we live in a time where, where you know, forms of knowledge are being replaced all the time. What could you possibly embody except with a degree of irony? You could, you know, we, we actually did it for our Natural History Museum project, which wasn't built. We got Nick Lane, who's making amazing discoveries about the origin of life. We said, we're going to cast all of this into stone. And then we said to him, it'll be really funny in 200 years' time, because people will come and they'll say, wow, imagine they once believed that. Nick wasn't too happy with that bit. But um, but, 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 but you, you could only do it with a form of irony. Um, and so I think that... Um, I think that that's a kind of a predicament for architecture. So we looked at Owen Jones, for example, whose wonderful book, Grammar of Ornament, tries to create a sort of theoretical underpinning for the idea of ornament. And one of I the have, buildings- I have it right here. 
Great, wonderful book and <laughs> fantastic illustrations. Yeah, you, you've got a, we've got a much chunkier. My mind's mine's a tiny little copy, but oh, I like your one. Yeah, yeah, but the, 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 the drawings are absolutely beautiful. But I mean, um, Owen Jones is, 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 is arguing that there is a kind of an underlying um, way in which ornament represents um, ideas about the construction itself. And so the building that we did at uh, King's Cross for Argent has got a lot of ornament cast into the concrete. But in each instance, the ornament is telling you something about what that element of the building is doing. So the huge structural pilasters have got this abstracted representation of papyrus plants, which goes back to the Egyptian idea that the strength of the papyrus plant growing up is an embodiment of the power of the structural member. Um, all of the infill walls are non-structural, which you see in a number of projects have got these intense weaving motifs which comes back to Semper's interpretation of Layard's finds from the 1840s, where he creates this lovely formulation that the origins of architecture, the, the separation of the inner world from the outer world, as he describes it, is, is, is associated with the motif of weaving. And so all of, the, all of the motifs that you see in that building are kind of underpinned by a, a, a consistent thought that they're representing at some level the, 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 the purpose of that element of the architecture. Um, but but behind it, and in a sense, that's why I've got this longer-term interest in Semper, not because of the particularities of what he does, but because uh, he makes this really interesting move, which is to say, well, if architecture is fundamentally mimetic, in the past, there's always been an idea that, you know, um, architecture is representing the um, the harmony of God. Or the, the 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 you know God's God's order for the universe. So it's got a perfectly stable external correlative, which it's which it says it's representing. And if you move forward, you get the idea of architecture as being a representation of nature. But what Semper does, I think, really beautifully, is in his four principles of architecture, he claims architecture to be a representation of human modes of making, which in themselves embody deeper modes of human culture. So human culture becomes of mimetic of its own ways. Um, and so the conversation is taken into human culture. And the idea of we, you know, meaning isn't somehow out there, that we then embody that external meaning. Meaning is created within ourselves, and that we then find forms of material practice to reify that meaning or to uh, to represent that meaning. And those forms of materialization of human, the, 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 the modes of materialization of human concepts become modes of decoration that then kind of under, those the, 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 that kind of underlie the idea that what architecture is eventually representing is uh, the way this, the human animal finds forms of material culture to embody its own predicaments and dilemmas, which I find much more interesting as an idea of what architecture would be. Yeah, no, I think you're right. That sort of repre representational role is important. Um, oh, I'm getting an internet connection is unstable warning. No, we're okay. Um, there's one one other last thing I'd really like to ask you about, which is housing. Um, the current housing secretary, which is Michael Gove again, I think, uh, has said that he wants houses to be both beautiful and sort of well-constructed. The government of has obviously adopted this idea that new housing should be beautiful, 
to what extent do you think that they can achieve that in changing the way that housing is produced such that the design quality increases? Can that be done? If it can be done, can it be done? Or rather, should it be done through legislation, through guidance, through planning law? Or is it something that requires a deeper sort of cultural shift within development or with even within architecture to the extent that architects are involved with mass housing? Gosh. Um, I'd like to throw you all the uh, all the deep, difficult questions. I mean, I, 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 I begin, my instinctive feeling is more a feeling about Michael Gove than about your bigger question <laughs> and, and, and about the kind of politics that produce... I mean, I think that they're well-meaning, um, the kind of politics that produce Roger Scruton or Michael Gove, the idea... But, but the idea of... I mean... Well, I was going to say it seems absurd to um, uh, try and try and create beauty through fiat, but I suppose folk have been doing that for a very long time. <laughs> I mean, every every um, every autocratic society has tried to has tried to create its 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 own ideas of beauty. I, I don't. Um, I think the the. the 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 issue of saying that you would produce beautiful housing um, within the context of the politics of the pronouncements that have come out from that particular government over recent time make me feel that that, 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 that I, I get sidetracked into a conversation about how on earth could you within a kind of multicultural society produce um, some fixed idea of beauty which could then be enforced through legislation. And it goes back through a kind of skepticism I have about one aspect of modernism, which is what I call instrumental modernism. Um, and the most obvious thing is those kind of gung-ho modernist architects who thought of their buildings as being instruments for fixing or changing the world. You know, that kind of idea of the, of the you know, from the machine for living in to the kind of 60s corporate architecture where the, where, where, where the building is. And I think there's a whole history of, conceiving of buildings as instruments. Um, but the other aspect of instrumental culture and modernism, which is probably less visible, but equally pervasive, is the idea that you can protect values and buildings through legislation, um, where the primary engine for development um, is, um, is, 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 is money and capital. And what you try to do is you try to strap onto that a kind of corrective mechanism through legislation to legislate for something like beauty. Um, and we did a project and I wrote an essay on it. If people are interested in that, it's on our website, it's called PEPLOS. And it was about the project that we did for the athletes village, which we call the three-legged race, because on one hand, the government were not going to build the, 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 the housing for the athletes village themselves. So they are going to go to lend lease and these big developers as the kind of engines for development. And on the other hand, because it was the Olympics, it had to embody some idea of cultural value or virtue. And so they sort of brought this panel of architects together to design the facades of these buildings. And they produced this kind of this kind of odd thing where um, there's kind of a, a, an attempt to use instrument, you know, legislative instruments to correct 
the natural way in which capital would produce those buildings. And you get this kind of hobbling along. And I didn't say it was a good thing or a bad thing. I just wanted it to be recognized as a thing. Um, and that there must be some some consequences to that in terms of in, in terms of architecture. And the difficulty that came out of that that I saw really is that housing becomes the housing is itself a kind of an abstraction that's produced by social democratic societies. Um, that, that 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 money is made available or land is made available for developers, either public or private developers, to create very large numbers of homes and settlements um, through kind of large scale infrastructure projects. And then somehow those things have to also be beautiful. And then the idea of beauty becomes, you, you have to then ask yourself, well, what kind of beauty is possible within an arrangement like that? Um, because it only allows you to be beautiful in certain kinds of ways. And if we go back to those conversations we had about beauty earlier on, um, that one thing is is reasonableness, um, and the other is that sense of that that kind of imminence of meaning that most beautiful things have. How is that produced through large-scale infrastructure projects? And on one hand, people like Rossi and his Galartese project would say, well, maybe it's possible to make buildings which are on the surface quite abstract, but somehow the way that they get filled with life is you know, that the, the, the life world somehow comes and fills them. And all you have to do is produce the bone structure for that. And I think that that's possibly an argument about how you might do it. And that actually the main task for architects would be about thresholds, dimensions, um, you know, le levels from the ground. Can a parent at the kitchen sink look down and see their child playing in the playground? All these kind of adjacencies. Can you have circulation spaces with daylight? Can you have all your bathrooms with daylight? These are all objective criteria that you could apply that, 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 that would make better housing. But the housing itself would only be beautiful in as much as it's reasonable. And then there's something else you would be looking for from it, which is if you do that successfully, it will somehow get filled with a certain kind of occupation that will take that demand off the architects and give it to give give it to the people who inhabit it. I mean, that would be that would be a positive way of thinking about it. But I think that behind that this particular government's view, and maybe I'm conflating Michael Gove and Scruton, but I suspect that they that they can be conflated. There's this idea that beauty is something that is already entrenched in British building stock and can simply be retrieved and added back onto the buildings in a way that I would see as being potentially problematic. I mean, it's not the first time it's happened. I mean, there's always been an attempt, um, not simply in Britain, but 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 there's always been an attempt to kind of revive ideas of how architecture once in the past embodied a notion of what our society should be like. And if only we could take those architectural forms and bring them into the future, then somehow we could recreate those conditions in our society. But that is a highly instrumental idea in itself. And I think you, we need always need to be cautious about that. I'm sorry, it's a difficult question. I don't, I don't feel I'm answering it fully adequately. But I think that for me, it goes down to this sense that um, making homes for people on a large scale um, through the kind of engines of development that are made possible by the ways in which these things are funded in the present is something that, that architects have to make a fairly cool appraisal of what's possible within that situation. And I think that for architects to, for, for, any, for anyone to say that there's some mode of beauty that could be legislated for in that, is inherently a problematic proposition. Mm.
Well, we like the most difficult questions on this podcast. That's the whole point of it. So that's very good. Um, and finally, what are you working on currently that you're most sort of interested in and excited about? Um, let's see, what have we got at the moment? Um, we're doing um, a number of um, buildings which have got to do with... Um, uh, which are faith buildings. We're doing an interesting burial ground and building for funerary rites for the Ismaili community in London. And I'm finding that very interesting. It's fascinating to enter into the world of a very particular uh, belief faith system to understand that and try and make a form of architecture for that. So that's intellectually and imaginatively very demanding. Um, we're designing um, a museum in Leiden in the Netherlands uh, on a very interesting historic site um, for uh, art, mostly religious art from the Middle Ages through onto the 20th century. Um, we just finished the, the International Rugby Experience in Limerick in the west of Ireland, which is uh, a substantial new building in the centre of Limerick, in the Georgian Quarter. Um, so we've got a fair range of stuff. I think we're doing housing. We're doing some leisure and retail stuff. We're, we're usually we do education stuff and work with colleges. We're doing a couple of museums. So it feels like a very nice time in the office when you look at the design conversations we're having around. They're really interesting. Well, that's good. Well, we hope to see more of those buildings in the awards lists in the future. And uh, hopefully but you back on the Sterling Prize list pretty soon as well. Well, that's very kind of you. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, Neil McLaughlin, thank you very much for speaking to us and good luck with all of your work moving forward. Good, good to talk to you. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.